Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is BAFTA winner Martin Campbell, one of the most established action directors of his generation, whose film credits include The Mask Off Zorro, Vertical Limit, Daniel Craig's first James Bond movie, Casino Royale, which also won a BAFTA, as well as decades worth of television. Today's conversation marks the 15th anniversary of Casino Royale, and in the episode, the 78-year-old and I discuss a number of topics. How Martin started his career as a TV cameraman not too far from the set where Stanley Kubrick was shooting 2001 A Space Odyssey, why he turned down the opportunity to direct The Mask of Zorro three times before getting the phone call from Steven Spielberg that finally convinced him, a tribute to his friend and composer James Horner, an Oscar winner for his music on Titanic, as we discuss what a James Bond score by him would have been like. Also, Martin's experience as one of the only filmmakers to direct two Bond films with different actors in the leading role, the creative and commercial misfire that was Green Lantern, why Martin considers David Lean the greatest director of all time, all of this and much more. In our chat, we mentioned Campbell's latest movie, The Protégé, as well as The Foreigner, a 2017 action-packed thriller which critics praised as, quote, Jackie Chan's finest performance to date. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes of the show. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Martin, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm really excited. You began your directing career with soft comedies and television through the 70s and 80s. And it's interesting to take notice that you were only 30 years old when you directed your first film. So I was wondering, you know, before talking about the more known projects, how did those early years of low budget filmmaking and fast paced television turn out to be a good training ground for you as you entered directing? What happened was that I was a television cameraman. I was a video cameraman during the second half of the 60s, really. I worked for a company called ATV, which was based in Elstree. And I was there at the time Kubrick was doing 2001, just up the road. And they were shooting The Dirty Dozen with Lee Marvin. So I was a cameraman and I got offered, I suppose you'd call it a sex film. I did two of those, but they were for general release. So it wasn't porn or anything like that. You weren't allowed to do that. So there were kind of two movies. One was called The Sex Thief and one was called Eskimo Null. They were made for roughly £15,000 each. Each was over 100 minutes and I had 15 days to shoot them. So that was my baptism of fire. Both were released and both did quite well. I then did a film which was terrible called Three for All, which was a all-family film produced by Dick James, who owned Northern Songs, the Beatles catalogue of music. And uh, I think I got 21 days on that shooting. Went to Spain, shot this thing. It was terrible. And I decided to give it up and uh, become a producer. 
just to decide where all the money was spent. It was certainly not on the screen as far as I was concerned. So to cut a long story short, I produced a movie with Elliot Kastner, who was a big producer at the time, an American producer in London. And um, it was called Black Joy. And it became the British entry to Cannes that year. And I just produced it. I didn't direct it. I then went on to finish the Sex Pistols film, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, as a line producer. And I was a line producer on a movie called Scum, which was a very successful British movie. It was Ray Winston's first movie ever, which is quite interesting. And considering I directed them in Edge of Darkness, God knows how many years later, (laughs) he'd done a few movies by then. And then I got a job doing second unit on a series called The Professionals, action series, a bit like uh, Starsky and Hutch at the time in America. And um, I got into that doing hour-long TV episodes of probably five or six of the major ones that I worked. And it was all shot on 16 mil, all the British TV series were at that point. And the thing was that an hour was an hour. You'd have to shoot an hour. Very tough. And in order to make any sort of mark for yourself, you really had to work very, very hard. And uh, that's your training ground, that the speed at which you work, the actors that you work with, the producers, the production crew, everything else was terrific training ground. After which I then did a series with Sam Neill called Riley Ace of Spies, which was a very successful period piece, 13 episodes. Uh, There were two directors, myself and um, Jim Goddard, another director. And then I did a couple of other things. And then I went to the BBC and did a series, six-part series called Edge of Darkness, which won, I think, six Academy Awards and so forth. You know, that was sort of my introduction to Hollywood. I'm going to skip a couple of years ahead, but I'm happy you mentioned Edge of Darkness because 85, 86 was for the majority, because you have returned to television occasionally, but for the majority, those were the years when you transitioned into feature film. So allow me to skip 10 years ahead and the first project I wanted to ask you about is is Mask of Zorro. Amblin was pretty candid in expressing that one of the reasons they love your work so much and your ability to reinvent long-standing characters like Bond. So I was wondering if you could take us back to that point in your career, 95, 96, after GoldenEye had come out. I wonder what kind of opportunities that had brought you. Well, after GoldenEye, I got offered all the other Bond films and I turned them down simply because I just felt at the time It was one more control room to blow up, right? And it was really variations of the same thing. And, uh, you know, perhaps I was a little kind of arrogant or whatever about should I do another Bond film? However, they came to me with Zorro and I turned it down. I turned it down three times. Well, let's start by saying Robert Rodriguez was supposed to direct it. I think he had a falling out with Amblin. I don't think they saw eye to eye. So they obviously wanted someone to replace him and they came to me. I didn't like the script very much. And I said, no. And then they asked me a second time and I said, no. And then the third time, Steven Spielberg rang me and said, look, I want you to do this. And at the time, of course, you know, Steven blew smoke up my ass. And then I I thought, well, (laughs) why not? And I remember the night of accepting the job, sitting with my agent and lawyer with my head in my hand saying, this is the worst decision I've ever made. I should never have said yes to this. So that's how we started that project. I obviously grew up with your films, but I think it's only now as I continue to learn about filmmaking myself is understanding that one of your absolute strengths 
as a director is the understanding of visual storytelling. And I was re-watching The Mask of Zorro and the opening shot of the film features a young Alejandro, you know, cutting two eye holes into black canvas. Oh, cutting the eye holes, yeah. You know, he leans in, he looks like he's wearing the mask and you're pretty much, you know, foreshadowing the whole movie in your opening shot. Sure. So I was wondering, taking a step back, when we talk about your relationship with the audience, how much care and meaning do you try and put into opening sequences? Well. You know, opening scenes are really very important. Look, you've got to hook your audience. And obviously in Zorro, you have that big sequence up front, which is where, you know, 12-year-old Alejandro is there with his brother, you know, who we see grown up later on. And that big scene in the town square, when Anthony Hopkins appears, when they're about to shoot the peasants and so forth, right, gives him a grand entrance. And then we see the way he fights off these soldiers and swings from flags and flagpoles and runs along walls, <laughs> does all that stuff. But finally, ending with the image of the horse kind of rearing up, a sort of classic sorrow symbol, if you uh, see what I mean. You would murder three innocent men just to capture me? I would murder a hundred innocent men if it meant killing you. <sighs> three men, three gods. A small memento of Mexico, Rafael, to remind you not to return. But also, you know, even in films like um, The Foreigner, it was really important to start that off with a, if you'll pardon the pun, a bang, which is exactly how it starts off. The Protégé starts off with a very interesting sequence that leads into a pretty neat action sequence. And uh, I, I think it's very important, the first 10 minutes of your movie, to hook an audience, just to get them involved and to stay with you in the moon. At the time you described The Mask of Zorro as your most physically demanding film, this is a very different action from Bond. You have horses and swords. So I wonder on a creative level, how did the experience of making the first Zorro compare to making the sequel seven years later? Well, the first one was, you know, they were tight on money. It was a film the studio didn't want. And the reason being that it was Sony who were making the movie and, uh, the management changed halfway through my pre-production. And John Kelly, who was the champion of GoldenEye at uh, United Artists, he came in to run Sony. And he said to me, I don't like the project. I don't like what it's costing. He just did not like it. I remember sort of yelling down the phone at him, look, then cancel it. Just bloody well cancel it. Because uh, if you don't like it, you know, what the hell am I doing here? And I didn't hear for... I think 10 days, nothing. And then I got a call to say the film is greenlit. And I rang Callie and said to him, you know, why the hell have you greenlit this movie? I mean, I thought you hated it. And he said, well, look, you know, I'm in it for 12 million already, right? He inherited that because of scripts and delaying actors and holding actors and so on and so forth. And he said, even if it's a dog, I can get, I can get 45 million foreign. So I'm making the film for $3 million. He's <laughs> a very funny man, John Kelly. It's probably a name you don't know, but if you look him up in the books, he ran Warner Brothers from 1970 to 79. Anyway, from, from that point on, we went down, we made it. I got no visits from the studio, anything. And uh, when we got back to Sony, I never heard from anybody. I was cutting the film in Sony. And uh, nobody rang, nobody inquired, you know, how it was going. I mean, they'd invested this money. It cost like 60 million, 55, I can't remember what the budget was. We were literally the sort of pariah, basically. They were expecting a, a bomb, I think. And uh, I remember the day we showed it to them. We spent a lot of time getting a really 
not only a good cut, but also we did a mix on the film with all Nina Rota's music, a whole thing. And they came in and, of course, it blew them away, really. They, they sort of completely reversed their attitude and they spent money on advertising and they made a lot of money off that film. This is called a training circle, the master's wheel. This circle will be your world, your whole life. Until I tell you otherwise, there is nothing outside of it. Captain Love is There is nothing outside of it. Captain Love does not exist until I say he exists. As your skill with the sword improves, you will progress to a smaller circle. With each new circle, your world contracts, bringing you that much closer to your adversary, that much closer to retribution. I like that part. Shall we? First of all, it was too late. I mean, that, that's the thing. If you're going to do a sequel, you've got to do it within, I think, two years, number one. Secondly, of course, both the... Uh, um, I'm just trying to think who the writers were. Uh, Alex, what's his name? Oh, uh, Orsi and Kurtzman. Kurtzman and Orsi, absolutely. They'd done this. And uh, in truth, I think it was too late. And you're quite right. Zorro could easily have just stood up by itself. But everyone was sort of keen to do it. They didn't ram it down our throat, but they wanted to make it. It wasn't as good a film. I mean, the great thing about the first one is the idea of the sort of peasant boy from across the tracks and the, you know, the sophisticated, well-bred girl on the other side. I mean, it's a classic story, really, isn't it? Whereas they were married, of course, in the sequel. And uh, it wasn't as good. It didn't have quite the ring and so forth. But uh, it is what it is. Sometimes I can imagine you have the resources to test the movie, screen it, rework it, and other times you may not. Is this part of your process as you're nearing the end of a director's cut with your editors to try and consider what can be better, what can be remolded? I've just finished my latest movie, which is a movie called Memory with uh, Liam Neeson. And uh, literally, I finished my cut today, basically. <laughs> Congratulations. I said, oh, thank you. Yeah which we cut very fast, but we've just finished that. And uh, we go through it every day. We screen the film, we look at it, we take four frames here, two frames there. Structurally, it's pretty solid because it's a thriller and it's a, it's a complex story. So, you know, you can't take one piece out without upsetting the whole, but it's exactly what we do. We go through it. You know, I think we screened it every day. Every day we went through every reel, sometimes twice a day, and adjusting and tweaking and different takes, different performance, going through every take yet again, and just seeing if there's a bad delivery, so on and so forth. So we're very thorough with that. And ironically, today is the day that we finish that up. So I'm very happy for you. You know, as you're talking about the elements that can impact a film, improve a film for the better in post-production, I cannot ask you about music because you said they used Nino Rota's score perhaps for a screening of Mask of Zorro, but we're very happy and, and lucky that we got the work of James Horner in the final films. Mm. I just wanted to ask you about your relationship with him because his work is one I miss on a nearly daily basis, even though I never had the luxury of meeting him. He was a great guy, James, really good. He actually asked me, he knocked on my door and said, I want to do the music for this film. He was just very keen on the subject. And I'd never met him before. And I said, absolutely. So he did it and he did a brilliant job on the score, I think, of Zorro. It was really, did a wonderful job. He also did the second Zorro and he also scored Beyond Borders for me. So I worked with him three times. And uh, ironically, when he used to do demos, his demo was to call you to his house in the valley. 
he'd sit on the piano and say, what do you think of this? And sort of just his fingers would run up and down the piano. I say, well, it sounds okay, but it's just a fucking piano. So, <laughs> so how am I supposed to know? Anyway, you know, in those days, he had the full orchestra, the 110-piece orchestra, which is always a thrilling time for a director when you have the big orchestra there and they're putting the music to the film, and it's a real kick. was extremely inventive in regards to the kind of musical instrument. I mean, the Zorro scores try to be very percussion-based. Well, it's true. He did. He used, for example, he got in a lot of uh, flamenco dancers and had them bash the floor with their heels and used that rhythm in a lot of the music. That sound you hear is not electronically created. It's actually dancers with the sound of their shoes hitting the floor. You know, one of my biggest fantasies is to imagine what a James Bond movie scored by James Horner would have been like. I wonder if at any point during your experience with the franchise, you or the Broccoli's ever mentioned James Horner's name as a potential candidate. I think I wanted him for, it might have been for Goldeneye, whatever. At that time, I think I went through four composers trying to get them. They're either unavailable. I want John Barry originally, but he didn't want to do another Bond. He didn't even see the film, I don't think. But I don't remember Horner's name ever coming up, honestly. I think they had David Arnold, who's terrific, did, did a great job, I think, on Casino. But uh, I think you're right, Horner would have done a terrific job on it. My last question about Zorro, I just wanted to ask you about the legacy of swashbucklers and you, the way you cover action. We'll, we'll, I'll start asking you about this, but sword fights in general. About it, you had this to say, quote, my job was to keep the camera wider to do the choreography justice, close quote. And I can imagine that not only having someone like Antonio doing his own fights allows you to cover the action with wider frames and longer takes, but also we should talk about Bob Anderson, your sword master, who worked with uh, Errol Flynn back in the 50s. Well, it's, uh, sword fights are no different to other action. I, I see so many films where the action is just, frankly, a mess. I don't know what the hell is going on. You know, there are blurs and punches and handheld and the cameras dancing around all over the place, but I don't know what the hell is happening. I can't see what anybody is really doing. Often it's overcut. It's cut so fast. Now, Bourne succeeds on that level, but a, a lot of movies, they're cut so fast, the camera's too close, you get no sense of the choreography or what's actually happening. And I've always stood back with action, and I just think it's important that an audience sort of sees what the fight is, understands the geography and the whole thing is cut fast yes but not overcut so that the action just becomes fake i mean you know if you cut very fast and you put a lot of hits and bangs and stuff like that in of course you're going to get a result i've always tried to keep my action whether it be zorro with sword fighting and longish takes which really makes the sword fighting seem real of course it's all been rehearsed with bob anderson who's a brilliant um, choreographer He was an Olympic swordsman himself, actually. Also, Bob had a work ethic where it didn't matter who you were, whether you were Anthony Hopkins or Joe Blow. I mean, the point was you worked your ass off to get this stuff right. It's very dangerous, too. Sword fighting can be very dangerous. Every gesture, every time you cross a sword, it's all been rehearsed. And they swap the real blades for aluminium blades, right? which are dulled in terms of the sharpness of the blade. But nevertheless, you know, I, I had times when 
Antonio, who was better than any of the stuntmen. I remember in Zorro, we had a big sequence in a military barracks, I think it was, and he's fighting five or six of them. And literally, when I called cut, his, his, his knuckles were red with blood, you know, from, uh, from mishits by the, by the other stuntmen, you know. Because Antonio and even Bob said to me, I've never seen anything like it. He's better than any of the stuntmen that we have. And he was. Allow me to transition into your experience with the Bond franchise. Just for people listening, GoldenEye in 95 and Casino Royale in 2006, they both mark reboot chapters. They're pretty much deconstructing whatever tone the previous movies were doing at the time. So before you turn down other Bond movies after your first experience and before your second, I was wondering what kind of opportunities did coming back to the franchise offer you on a personal and a creative level? I'd done a movie in Australia called No Escape. And there was a TV series I did that was pretty successful. I think that combination got me the job on GoldenEye. Well, of course, I was thrilled to get that. To be honest, we came after Roger Moore. And Roger Moore, he clearly had his own stamp on that. It was very specifically kind of Roger Moore's sense of humor, the way that he played it with the slightly raised eyebrow, the whole bits and pieces, a lot of humor. When it came to GoldenEye, there was a gap of six years, I think, six or seven years before they could actually make one after the Sim Dalton series. The reason was legal. They weren't allowed to, because the man who was running MGM at the time was in trouble. Anyway, so when it, when it came to GoldenEye, we were in the mid-90s, and the big problem was that everybody felt that, you know, Bond was, in a funny way, could have been passed as sell-by date, that, you know, with that gap and everything else, I don't think the Dalton ones had been as successful as the, obviously, the Connery ones. So there was this real feeling of, is it going to succeed or not? And uh, in the end, we had, the first script was written by Michael France, and then we had Bruce Fierstein came on. Bruce really went through the script, and between us, we all managed to pull together on it, and with a new bond and so forth, you know, someone like Pierce, of course, the tone of the piece is, of course, different, simply because, as I say, Roger put his own stamp on it, and Pierce put his stamp. Of course, we're in the Cold War, so, you know, we had Russia was the enemy, if you will, and uh, it seemed to work. We had to update it into the 90s, hence the scene between M and Bond, where she calls him a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, which is sort of what I guess the audience would all be asking. And, of course, we had a female M, so that's how we updated the franchise, if you see what I mean. And the story was all about knocking out the world's electronics and so forth, so it was very much of the time. So, yeah, that's what we did. Once you've done one Bond, Bond is set. The character is set. And I remember I used to say, well, how many control rooms can you blow up? And maybe a different control room, but it's, it's still a control room. You know, I just felt that what would happen is there's going to be another madman that will try and take over the world and Bond will, you know, will go in and deal with them and so forth. Another control room will be blown up. So in a way, it was just not wanting to repeat what I'd done. As simple as that.
I know people ask a lot about the casting of Daniel Craig, but I was wondering if I could ask about the casting of Eva Green, who at the time was only 25. Was she someone who was brought to you by your casting director, Debbie McWilliams? And more generally, when you're narrowing down your casting choices, how do you try and work with your casting directors to make the most out of a chemistry or a screen test, which I imagine in a movie like that is so important? Well, what's interesting about this is one... I can't honestly remember. It was probably Debbie McWilliams, who was the casting director, that had suggested that. The two producers, Barbara and Michael, myself, we both loved the idea. We met with her. She had a fairly heavy accent. And we said, look, you're going to have to get rid of the accent. Can you do it? We hadn't even gone to Sony at this point. And she said, yes, I can. So we went to Sony, and Sony were not that keen on it because we had tested eight other girls or seven, I can't remember, none of who we thought were right. The three of us and the casting director loved the idea of Eva Green. Sony were not impressed and they, I don't think, wanted her. So what we did was we waited until we'd started shooting and then we basically said to Sony, look, we're in trouble. We haven't got time to get anybody else. We've got to have Eva Green. So that's the way we got it. And she came in and she did an audition, which we put on film, and she was terrific. And we sent that to Sony. We were already shooting. So that's really how we got her. What else can you surmise, Mr. Bond? About you, Miss Lynn? Well, your beauty's a problem. You worry you won't be taken seriously. Which one can say of any attractive woman with half a brain? True, but this one overcompensates by wearing slightly masculine clothing being more aggressive than her female colleagues, which gives her a somewhat prickly demeanor. And ironically enough, makes it less likely for her to be accepted and promoted by her male superiors. We mistake our insecurities for arrogance. All right. Now, having just met you, I wouldn't go as far as calling you a cold-hearted bastard. No, of course not. But it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine. You think of women as disposable pleasures rather than meaningful pursuits. So as charming as you are, Mr. Bond, I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed house. You noticed. You know, when we talk about the writing process and sometimes these films are engineered around action sequences, how does the scouting process impact your approach to designing action? Because at the end of the day, it's really about a process of blending, you know, vehicles, locations, stunts and obstacle in a way that feels new and fresh for the audience. Well, what I always do is I rewrite the action myself in just about all my movies. I rewrote it in The Foreigner. I, I certainly wrote a lot of the action in The Protégé. And I, I wrote a lot of the action in the film I've just done. And, and the reason for that is that I know action and I know kind of what I want to achieve. And it's also trying to marry action to the characters, really. Action in and of itself, you know, can be okay, but if you can have it character-driven rather than just a lot of thumping and banging and sensational. For example, I've just seen <laughs> when saw Fast and Furious. I kind of tuned out after 15 minutes, and it's a terrible film in the sense that the action is just so absurd, you just give up. With Bond particularly, you know, the big chase at the beginning was six lines, but they did come up with the idea this is going to be the, you know, best parkour chase ever filmed director to, to deal, deal with it. And quite right, I don't expect writers to write action. I expect them to write the intent of the action. But, you know, here was a case where Bond is after the terrorist guy who happens to be a parkour expert. 
But Bond is thinking with his heart instead of his head. You know, he does crazy things trying to follow this guy as he jumps and catches things. He's clumsy and, you know, he, he's like a bull in a china shop. And then when he jumps from crane to crane, he almost falls off. He smashes against the thing, gets up, and then when he jumps off, he lands really badly. You know, he crashes onto the stuff. But it's that relentless kind of determination to get this guy. The way he follows this guy and the things he does right, are all related to his character. He's a blunt instrument, I think, as M calls him. And it's only at the end of the movie he finally can be called the James Bond that we know. So character is, is really important, how the character reacts in action, what he's feeling, what drives him, and so forth. That, that's all, I think, very important as well. Bond, this may be too much for a blunt instrument to understand, but arrogance and self-awareness seldom go hand in hand. So you want me to be half monk, half hitman? Any thug can kill. I want you to take your ego out of the equation and to judge the situation dispassionately. I have to know I can trust you, and that you know who to trust. And since I don't know that, I need you out of my sight. Go and stick your head in the sand somewhere and think about your future. Because these bastards want your head. And I'm seriously considering feeding you to them. When you talk about writing action, how much are we talking about really writing the action compared to storyboarding, which I know is a massively important process for you? I storyboard the whole of the, that casino action at the front. I ha had to storyboard that because I did quite a lot. The second unit under Alex Witt did a lot, but we followed the storyboards. That you have to do simply because the cost and people need to know what they're doing and what has to be achieved. But if I don't have a second unit, that I sort of go out and plan all this stuff. And for example, I have a big fight in uh, memory. I didn't storyboard any of it, but I knew every shot, and I knew every bit of action, and I knew the way I wanted the action to unfold and how Liam actually does the action. Again, very character-related. So, you know, sometimes I storyboard, sometimes I don't. But I do plan it very carefully if I do storyboard. The Bond movies sometimes have up to three or four units at the same time. How does your approach differ when you expect the other units to match your level of style and energy? And how does it differ when you can take care of everything yourself? Well, I mean, what you do is you storyboarded the stuff. You sit with your second unit director and you say, this is what I want. Boom, boom, boom. Let's go through each storyboard, which you do. Alex Witt, who does the second unit on Bond, is a terrific second unit director. He's absolutely fantastic, very dedicated and very detailed and efficient. We sit down, we talk about it. I do talk about the energy, but they understand that someone like Alex Witt doesn't really need to be told. He's done second unit for a long time, and he's one of the best in the world. And as I say, I just say, look, if you can come up with something better, shoot what I've got on the board. Once you've done that, go and do 10 other versions if you want to do it. If you think you've got a better idea, do it. I'd love to ask you about your relationship with cinematographers, Phil Mayhew and David Tattersall. Phil had a fantastic way to express your work together. Quote, the thing about action photography is coverage. The more coverage you have, the more exciting the scene can get. The more time you can cut to a new shot, the better it looks. So when I work with Martin, we usually design the storyboards together. We did. So I was wondering with both of them, how do you try and manage multiple cameras to build an action sequence one piece at a time? I'm a single camera guy. Certainly with most of the stuff I do, obviously it's explosion, six or seven cameras, the usual. I do that at varying speeds. At most, in a lot of the action, I'll just use a second camera. I'll just use two cameras, right? 
I'm not one of those school of let's use five cameras on every shot. I think it's ridiculous, certainly for me. So, you know, I've planned it very carefully. I know what I want. I have the setup I want and I cut really the movie and the camera, to be honest. I rarely do master shots and uh, I plan it all out cut for cut. If you looked at my script, you would see sequences that almost edit exactly like the list of shots that I've got. Now, I'll often run a second camera just to pick up something else in the scene, but that's it. You know, I'll run a second camera. Obviously, as I say, if it's big action, like explosions and stuff like that, then obviously you use multi-cameras for that. But I keep it fairly lean. You know, when, when we talk about your process as an action director, you've been very candid about the fact that you believe in letting the audience see the action. We're talking about smoother camera movements, emphasis on geography and longer takes. Again, when we discuss designing action, I was wondering if I could ask you about your relationship with second unit directors in general. How has your approach to storyboarding kind of evolved over the years? And how do you try and have the second unit's energy and style match the one of the first unit? Well, first of all, it depends on who you hire to be a second unit director. On something like Casino Royale, I had Alex Whip. Now, Alex is terrific. He's worked with Ridley Scott, just about everybody. But also, in his own right, he's directed uh, two or three features. And uh, my process is simply, on that movie, I did an awful lot of storyboarding, simply because you have many units. I think I had four units going. Obviously, a second unit. There was a third unit picking up uh, bits and pieces and so forth. For example, in the parkour chase, I storyboarded that whole thing from beginning to end. And always my rule is to say to the directors, look, shoot the storyboard, get the storyboard, and then you do what the hell you like. If you can come up with something better, go ahead and do it. Just cover it and uh, put your own stamp on it. Now, with someone like Alex, you know you're going to get something good. And he follows the storyboard, he does what he's told, and then he puts his own stamp on it. You know, and often it's multi-camera. It's a second unit, obviously, with uh, some of the bigger stuff. Obviously, has multi-cameras. So in that sense, Simon Crane's another one that I worked with as second. In fact, I gave him his break as a second unit director way back in 2000 on Vertical Limit. He is terrific as well. So if you know the director, you know what you're going to get. And these guys will give you more than what you need. On something like The Protégé, I didn't have a second unit. I did it myself. So that's basically how it works. Before moving on to your most recent projects, I hope you'll indulge me in asking you just one question about Green Lantern. Mm. Just because we're approaching the 10th anniversary of the film, having a little bit of time since the movie was released, I was wondering if you ever imagined why the film just didn't connect with audiences in the way you personally hoped it would. Well, here's the thing about Green Lantern. You know, I replaced another director. I'd never done a superhero movie before, so that was the challenge, really, and I look forward to that. But I think the problem with the movie was probably twofold. I mean, it was very true to the character of Hal Jordan. If you look at the comics, I went through all the comics, all of the characters, Hal's character particularly, his relationship with Blake Lively, was all very much from the comics. So I think all of that was kind of correct. I don't think the script was very good. I don't think the script was good enough. Perhaps I didn't do a good enough job. It was just one of those things. There were lots of budget cutting. I had a whole different ending to the movie. The last third of the, or the last quarter of the movie, I had a completely different ending, which was totally scrapped because of budget. And we had to do what I thought was an extremely compromised and bad ending. 
actually to the movie. So, you know, it's a combination of those things. You work, ironically, just as hard on those movies as you do on the successful ones. And for whatever reason, a combination of reasons, I think, whether it be the script, whether it be the ending of the movie, who knows what, uh, it didn't work. And it was a flop. Your name? Hal Jordan. The ring chose you. Take it. Speak the oath. Speak the oath. Because everybody knows the oath. I pledge allegiance to a lantern that I got from a dying purple alien. The Foreigner and the Protégé are fantastic examples of your recent work. You discuss how not only you embrace, but also prefer, at this point in your career, making films with a smaller budget. I mean, The Foreigner was just about $35 million, which isn't a lot considering what you had to achieve. So how have you noticed your own directing evolve over the course of the years? And at this point in your career, why do you choose to work on stories like The Foreigner or The Protégé or your next movie with Liam Neeson, which is Memory? Yeah, you know, on the big movies, it's oddly not that much different. You would think with big money and so forth, you have more time. Well, with big money, of course, the projects require, you know, the size of what you have to do is bigger. So therefore you need that. With things like The Foreigner, it's all independent filming. These days, it's either Star Wars and Marvel, or you make them for $35 million or 25 or whatever it may be. And uh, the in-between movies, you know, I did Vertical Limit was, I think, cost 80 or something, right? Fortunately, it was successful and it did make them quite a lot of money. But those sort of movies don't exist anymore, or very few of them exist. You either make that huge jump into the Marvel world, the Bond world, everything else, or you're doing... Well, the 35, maybe 40 million, if you're lucky, 50. So the gap in between now is huge. And also, I think a lot of comments that, that I looked online where people are now saying the Marvel movies all just seem to be almost by rote. They all seem to be the same movie, basically. They're all blending into one another. It's almost like just formulaic. I think that's absolutely true. So therefore, to do films like The Foreigner, The Protégé, and uh, I've just finished Memory, I find, A, the scripts are way more interesting, much more character-driven, and uh, more exciting. Because, you know, otherwise, for the big budget ones, you're left with projects that, to be honest, are, I say generic, but I mean, Marvel has certainly become generic, I think, in that sense. You mentioned The Foreigner and David Marconi's screenplay. What is your relationship like with writers developing story? They're never close to being done. Unfortunately, you know, the day you get the first draft that you can go and shoot, of course, you know, is the day pigs have wings. But in the Marconi script, it was given to me quite early on. I read it and the, one of the producers gave it to me and said, read this. I read it. I kind of liked it. It was 140 pages, I thought, a little too long. It needed some work. So I worked with Marconi, David, for, I think, a couple of drafts to try and get it down. And then I ended up going off to do Hunter Killer for relativity. I was eight months on that, nine months on that. The Foreigner was going to be done by another director. He was signing on. And when my film, Hunter Killer, went down at that time, I then got a call from STX to say that the director that was on board had now left the production, I think for financial reasons, and would I like to do it? And so I went back on to it. So, you know, it spanned a couple of years, all this kind of shenanigans going on like that. The protege was something that, again, two years earlier, I'd been 
given the script. And the writer said to me, look, I'll do a rewrite, but I won't do it unless I know it's going to be made. And uh, the guy who had sort of developed it originally went to Avi Lerner and Avi brought on Moisha Diamond, who was the producer, and we made the movie. But again, it was probably over three years from the first moment that I read it, put it down, developed other things and so forth. And the latest one, which is the Liam Neeson movie, Memory, which is about a hitman getting Alzheimer's. That was a movie that was actually shot in 2003 in Belgium. Very good movie. And it was called Memory of a Killer. We contacted the producer of the original film, who is equally a producer on this film. And uh, we got the rights and we set it on the US-Mexican border. It's set in El Paso. So we adapted it for that. From the point I'd actually seen the movie, I, I loved it. So it was a shoo-in to actually do the American version. My last question about The Foreigner, correct me if I'm wrong, but the movie was shot in about 53 days. How do you work with your first ADs to maximize, obviously, time and resource on this? And in general, when you have action and dialogue, how do you try and schedule a movie to make sure that your cast and crew don't burn out? Here's the thing. You know what dictates schedules? Cast. Cast entirely dictates schedules. For example, on The Protégé, I had Sam Jackson for 11 days. So you have to schedule everything with Sam Jackson in 11 days. Go a day over, it's going to cost me a quarter of a million dollars, whatever. Michael Keaton, I had for four weeks. Maggie, I had throughout the whole movie, thank God. So that means that the schedule is entirely dictated by those actors. So I'm not scheduling for the most economic and um, the best way possible. I have to get rid of those actors within that time frame. Okay, so that's the way it works. And so within that time frame, you also hope you'll get some sort of continuity. Right? Well, I was almost shooting the end of the film before I shot the beginning of the film. So within those time limits I've given you is the economics that after that, that and, and for example, you know, are the sets ready? Has the set be completed? When will it be complete? That often dictates when you can actually shoot. So the answer is you have no bloody control on the schedule. You just have to work around all of those um, obstacles. Someone killed a friend of mine because of a contract he completed years ago. And anyone I ask about it ends up dead. Why is that? Well, I don't know. Some people might take that as a sign. Why don't you just consider it a mystery best left unsolved? But I like mysteries. When I started this, I was curious. And then I went from curious to concerned. And now? I'm testy. And trust me, you don't want to know me when I'm testy. Before my final question, I thought we could play a quick game of speed around whatever the first thing that comes to mind. Every director may have a mentor in their career, directly or indirectly. When you think back, who do you think has taught you the most finding your voice as a filmmaker from the beginning? Well, there's probably three or four. Early John Frankenheimer was someone who I, I loved. I loved the original Manchurian Candidate, which I thought was a phenomenal film. Unfortunately, the later one was not good. Frankenheimer, Sidney Lumet, I was a terrific fan of. Peter Weir is another one. And of course, my top was David Lee, who I think was probably the best director to live. <laughs> that, that would be my four top directors. When shooting on location, what is your preference between five, six or seven day weeks, depending on the project? Uh, five day weeks, perfect. It never works out this way, unfortunately. So, you know, if they do six day weeks, it's cheaper for them to do that. But what it doesn't do is give you, it's not just the days off, it's the prep time you need to prep your next week's work and so forth. 
I hate six-day weeks, but inevitably you end up doing a lot of six-day weeks simply because the economics demand it. The six-day weeks also exhaust the crew because obviously you do six days. If you're on night shoots, for example, you may shoot the Saturday night, but then you're sleeping Sunday, so you're not resting. You're just really doing a night's sleep. That's all you're doing. So five-day weeks, absolutely. Six-day weeks, I can happily do without. But again, economics dictate all of this. Of all of your films, which one offered you the steepest learning curve, like the one you learned the most from making? Probably GoldenEye, I think, because that was my first so-called big film. I mean, the irony is, of course, the negative cost of that film was $58 million, which was incredibly, and now they're almost $300 million. <laughs> so it gives you an idea of what the hell you're dealing with. But, but no, I think that was... Because I had four units, we had a model unit, we had a second unit, we had obviously the main unit and um, a special effects unit. I had multiple units that I had to storyboard for. I didn't even have a second unit on No Escape, I don't think. It was just, I did the lot. And that's where you learn to grow up fast because you're dealing with a big, big crew, hundreds of people. You have four units going. You have to deal with those four units. You have to storyboard all the material for them. And on top of that, you're trying to get the script right and everything else. So probably that's the film that I learned the most. If there was a university course on the filmmaking of Martin Campbell and you could only choose one movie for the students to screen, which one would you pick? Oh, boy. Probably Casino, I think, is probably the one. My very last question for today. Looking back at your entire career, not only as a director, but as an entertainer, what have you learned about the kind of movies you like to make? And in what way do you think audiences are going to remember your great movies even 100 years from now? Oh, God, well, I don't think they will. <laughs> well, I love thrillers. I love thrillers. I love good stories. I obviously enjoy action. Uh, you know, I love Bond films, for example. I think everybody loves Bond films, to be honest. I like action films if they're well done. And there are not many of them that are that well done now, I don't think, you know, because the problem now is that I think narrative story has gone by the wayside. I think if you look back to the films of the 70s, even the 80s and so forth, they really told great stories. I mean, you never get a Godfather now. You never get a French Connection. You never get Three Days of Condor. They just don't exist anymore. They're fine storytelling, great movies, exciting movies. And I think a lot of that has gone by the wayside. In fact, television has almost overtaken it for some of these terrific series that you can see and so forth, uh, are so well done, far better than I think a lot of the movies. I think you make movies on subjects that you really, really like to see. In my case, it's what I've said, which is thrillers. I, I love uh, really good action movies. I like great stories and so forth. And it's interesting because years ago, I did a little HBO movie called Cast a Deadly Spell, which if you haven't seen, you should look at it. I'd just come off a movie which I, I thought I did a terrible job of called Defenseless, which was a little movie that was just not good. And that was the end of it. And I was so depressed because the preview audience hated it. <laughs> and I was gobsmacked. And my wife at the time, uh, I got the script called Lovecraft, which was subsequently retitled Cast a Deadly Spell. It was a, not a big budget, very small, like $5 million or something. It was all set in 1948. It was a kind of Humphrey Bogart type thing. Title on the front said, in 1948, everyone used magic. So magic was the currency. The more powerful your magic, the more wealthy you were. And um, my wife said, 
look, I really think you should just get into this. And I said, look, this is not me. This is not my sort of shit. I really, all this fantasy crap and so forth, not for me. Anyway, I needed the money. So I said, fuck it, I'll do it. So I did. And it turned out really well. I was very successful. So it just goes to show if you do something outside of what you would normally do, it can work really well. Martin, thank you so much for all the time you've shared with me. It means a lot. I've learned a lot. And I'm excited for people to check out not only The Protégé, which is out now, but also Memory, which is coming out soon. That's great. Thanks, Brenda. We'll see you. Well, we'll see you soon. All right. I'll talk to you soon. There you have it, folks. Thank you to Martin for calling in to record this episode, to Ryan Regina, who helped set this all up, and to Eric for taking care of the final mixing. The Protégé is now available in physical media and on VOD, and Martin's next film, Memory, starring Liam Neeson, will be released in 2022. If you enjoy your program, please help us by subscribing to the show and leaving a review. It really helps cinephiles and new listeners discover the podcast. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.